Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. First, I just want to say <clears throat> that it's wonderful to see all of you and just to see, to be here and to share the Dharma um, with this room full of people. I've really been appreciating people uh, these last few days. When the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree in the town that's now called Bodhgaya in India, as most of you probably know, he had left his family, left the comforts of the palace, gone on an ascetic journey practicing the most difficult, austere practices, really torturing the body, starving it, developing as much wisdom as he could through the concentration and meditation exercises that were available with the finest teachers around. For six years, he practiced as hard and sincerely as he could. And still, he hadn't actualized his goal of finding deep meaning and happiness and freedom in his life. That's something to, to keep in mind when you find yourself struggling through a day, you know, <laughs> an ache in the, in the knee, a wandering mind. It just doesn't come like that. And in fact, when he sat under that tree that night, he had really come to the end of his line. He'd done everything possible there was to do that he knew. Studied with the best teachers, done as sincere practice as he could. He did it all. Left his comrades who he had been wandering around with. And he had come to the point where he said, this is it. I will sit under that tree until I either awaken to the truth, to the deepest meaning of things, or die. That's pretty impressive. When you talk about determination and resolution, Mm -hmm. Try coming into a sitting like that here. <laughs> he must have had some kind of premonition. You know. <laughs> Who knows? But luckily for him and for us, he touched something that transformed him. And at the age of 35, he knew that he came to the end of his quest. As he sat under there, perhaps wondering what was going to happen, he remembered a meditation that he had spontaneously fallen into when he was a child, a seven-year-old child, sitting under a rose apple tree during, his, during a festival that was happening that his father was putting on, where he just spontaneously got very quiet and followed his breath and turned the awareness inward. And he thought, maybe I'll do this. What have I got to lose? Huh? And that was a doorway in to the deepest possible awakening. And it's pretty amazing and inspiring to think the power of that experience that not only transformed him, but has touched thousands and thousands, millions, billions 
people in one way or another for the last 2,500 years. This coming full moon in May in the Theravadan calendar, as I figured it out, 2,583 years ago, he sat under the tree and said, this is it. And for the next 45 years of his life, he shared in one form or another what he discovered that night. And so I'd like to share with you tonight those basic truths and facts about reality that transformed him. The four noble truths that he discovered. Now you might have heard some of you, a number of you have heard talks or have read about the four noble truths countless times. Perhaps you've talked to other people about it. Until you have experienced for yourself that deepest awakening and freedom, there's still more to penetrate, still more to open up to. And so I hope you can take it from right where you are now in a new way to experience the understanding that you do have and the possibilities of even deeper and deeper understanding to these truths. Keeping in mind that whatever discourse he gave one way or another for those next 45 years was referring back to these basic truths. The first truth that he discovered as he sat under the tree is the fact that there is suffering in life. The word dukkha is this first noble truth, dukkha. And often it's translated as suffering. A better, perhaps, translation might be this quality of unsatisfactoriness in life. Sometimes when people hear the first truth and in their minds it comes out, life is suffering. It's a pretty gloomy picture. That's a very depressing way to go through your life. Life is suffering. Well, not all of life is suffering. You probably enjoyed lunch today. Probably had some nice fantasy or experience somewhere in the last couple of days. You probably appreciated not having to do a whole lot of busyness and work somewhere along the line in these couple of days. Perhaps you've appreciated the sunrise or the sunset or the fact that there's community and the opportunity to practice. All of those things are beautiful. And so, I don't want to put out the message that it's all bleak and gloomy. There's beauty to life. There's music, there's love, there's art, there's compassion, there's wisdom, there's peace. All of those things are part of life. However, There's no experience that we can have that lasts. Because everything, as perhaps you've seen over these days, everything is changing. And since everything is changing, to hold on to any experience, or to try to, is going to be painful. Because there's nothing that lasts. The greatest meal you've had, the wonderful relationship, the great car or trip or whatever it is, none of it lasts. That's the nature of reality. It's not bad. It's not wrong. It's just the way things are. There's this infinite creativity in life that continually transforms itself. 
It's amazing when you think about it. However, we are generally bound in this physical plane and get caught in time and space and try to hold on to that which is impermanent. And because things don't last, he said, there is this quality of unsatisfactoriness in experience. There's the unsatisfactoriness that we can feel in our own bodies. Have you noticed when you start sitting and being still? You might feel good for a little while. Ah, gee, this is great. I'm finally settling in. Okay. And then a few minutes later, uh-oh. <laughs> what happened? What did I do wrong? My shoulder hurts. It didn't last. Or the delicious, sweet meditation that you finally get. Wow, the fifth day, it's about time, right? <laughs> okay, great, I got it made. I finally figured this one out. And we forget it doesn't last. And so there's this unreliability, ungraspability of experience. There's the suffering in our bodies, the suffering in our minds. There's obviously suffering on a global level. There's birth, and the inevitable result is death. It's part of the package. There's life feeding on life, just the way it goes. You ever look at those Walt Disney nature films? You know, they're so, so cute, the little muskrat going here and the little fox going there. and then you take a good look at what's going on. <laughs> Whoa! They don't show that part usually, you know? but you know it's there when you start to grow up. It's part of the package. There's the suffering of not getting what you want. That's painful, isn't it? And then, as was mentioned the other day, there is a suffering of finally getting what you want and it not quite doing it for you. <laughs> this was it. God, lunch. I know that I'll find peace finally at lunch. Okay? You get it. Might even taste great. And the food has been terrific as usual here. And then it's over. Oh, what now? God, lunch isn't for another 24 hours. You know? <laughs> So there's this quality of unsatisfactoriness as long as we are in experience. Now when people hear that first truth of suffering, suffering or unsatisfactoriness, it does seem kind of like a, a depressing teaching. But the paradox is that the more you really understand this, not just intellectually, but really understand deeply for yourself this truth of unsatisfactoriness and ungraspability of experience, this truth of suffering, the greater the possibility is of waking up to deep freedom and peace. You'd think that it's the last thing you'd want to encounter if you want peace or happiness inside. Oh, do I have to relate to all this suffering? Well, if you don't, if you, if you try to pretend or somehow distract yourself from it, then you will be continually surprised again and again at the seeming unfairness of life. How did I get tricked? What went wrong? What mistake did I make? Not realizing that this is the way things are. Whereas the more you understand it, really understand it, there's not the surprise. There's not the sense of something going wrong. There's the true awakening without fear to the way things are. Ah, and this is part of life too. And so when you're going through your sufferings and your aches in your body or your insults in your mind, it's not a problem. It's not a mistake. It is 
the doorway to waking up. And that's what the Buddha talked about when asked. He said, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. Wonderful. And he just told it like it is. Didn't pretty up the picture. And in fact, in that direct, uncompromising look at the way things are, that was his gift to all of us. So this is the first truth. Then he went a little further that night and wanted to find out where is the cause the crux of this problem of suffering. How does it arise? And that led him to the second truth. The cause of suffering or unsatisfactoriness. And generally, the translation is the cause of suffering being attachment. Sometimes the word desire is used. And it's a little tricky because there's lots of different kinds of desires. There's a desire to feed the body. That's a good desire. There's a desire to come and meditate or to open the heart. There's a desire to express your caring. Those are good kinds of desires. A lot of desires, however, lead to confusion and lead to more grasping. And this is where we can take a look at our part in this puzzle what the Buddha called untangling the tangle of our predicament and confusion. There's pain that is part of the package. Your body hurts, it gets older, it gets sick, it eventually dies. There's no getting around that. But then there's the whole extra element of our attitude that we bring to our experience. Our wishing things were other than the way they are. When there's not much you can do about it, and things are the way they are, you've got two choices. Wish they were different, and feel pretty frustrated, or somehow come to terms and somehow use the experience to wake up by allowing, by accepting, by opening, by understanding. So those are pretty major choices that we have. Okay, so let's take a look at this second noble truth. The cause of suffering, wanting, another way to put it. The wanting mind. Wanting things to be different. Wanting things to stay the same. Just that movement of wanting, of grasping, of contracting, either around experience or away from experience. Wanting. How does it operate? I would just like to take you through a little um, illustration that I have found helpful in looking at this, this wanting mechanism in, in myself. Suppose you are having a nice quiet evening outside the retreat, this is. Okay. <laughs> it's nice when you have a nice quiet evening in the retreat. You know. But suppose you're at home and you're just having a, an enjoyable time Suppose you're reading a nice book, a good book that you're really into, and it's quite full and content, just where you are. And all of a sudden, the thought comes to you as you're reading the book, ice cream. Okay? And you can fill in whatever you want, tofu burgers, or conversation, or TV or whatever, but for the purposes of, of this, and I hope it's not too painful to take you through this, uh, <laughs> we'll just use ice cream. Okay? All of a sudden, the book loses its attraction. Okay, let's go see what's there. And you go to the 
freezer, and there's nothing quite there that does it. But the thought is still there. And so you might find yourself on a journey. And you've got strong intention, strong focus, commitment (laughs) to the ice cream parlor. And you're not probably going to be in a very talkative mood as you're on your way there. If somebody bumps into you and says, hi, how you doing? You might be polite, but you're on a mission. Right? And so you finally get to the, the ice cream parlor and order your favorite ice cream, Jamocha almond fudge or whatever it is. Right? And there it is in your hand, and it's still not quite satisfying. If somebody came and knocked it out of your hand, you wouldn't turn around and go back. In fact, actually, there's that tension until finally you put it to your lips, take one lick, peace, finally. Now what has happened there? You take your lick, feels good, then what do you do with the rest of the ice cream? If you're like many people, kind of looking around everybody else and keep on licking and maybe not even being here for it until it's the very end you usually wake up. I do anyway. You know. <laughs> hey, wait a second. <laughs> it's going. Let me taste this. <laughs> After that first lick, the second and third don't have nearly the compelling quality that the first one does. What happens is that that desire that's propelled you forward has finally ended. Ah. And it feels really good, doesn't it? For how long? A few moments. Then you finish your ice cream and maybe you're kind of dry in the mouth and what you really need is some water. Okay, that'll do it. So you drink some water. Now I'm a little bloated. What I really need to do is just walk this off. Okay, And so you go for a walk. Well, I'm a bit tired now with all of this activity. I just want to lie down. And if you look one activity to the next, to the next, to the next, we are propelled into the future by this wanting. Because it felt so good, that end of desire, it really does feel good for that moment. It feels so good that we think the game is about creating another desire and then having it end, and then another one, and then another one. And if we can put them close enough together so that there's no gaps, then we've won the game. Then we're happy. But it doesn't work that way because obviously there's always going to be gaps. Everything ends. Now just take another possible scenario as you're sitting home reading the book and the thought of ice cream comes in and you're on your way to the the refrigerator and all of a sudden the phone rings and it's somebody you haven't spoken to in a long time and it's really great to hear from this person and there you are engaged in this conversation and you're on the phone for a while and then you put it down and you forget all about your thought of ice cream and you go back to reading your book. You might have a wonderful rest of the night, close it quite contentedly, go to sleep. So it wasn't the ice cream itself that created the happiness. It was just the ending of that desire, that place that is toppling you forward, that says, this isn't enough. This moment isn't enough. I need something else to feel happy. And that state of tension needs to be relieved, we think. What really needs to happen is the end of the desire. And there's a few different ways for that desire to end. The Buddha talked about a few different ways that this mechanism of attachment operates few different areas that we get caught. One is wanting 
a sense experience, another sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. That will give me happiness. Think of how many meals you've eaten, how many gourmet meals that have come and gone, how many tactile experiences you've had. Where are they now? You could probably use one, right? Just one. Maybe that'll do it, right? And we get hooked in thinking the next, the next, the next. Another area that we get caught, another kind of attachment, another grasping, besides sense experience, is the whole realm of mind. Attachment to a certain idea, a certain opinion, a certain view. And we get very caught up in thinking our way is the right way. That's what wars are about. That's what conflict is about. That's what a sense of separation and alienation and cruelty and misunderstanding That's what those are all about. Two sides or more getting attached to their idea of reality. It's this way. Don't you see? You're wrong. How dumb of you to think differently than me. And we get very caught up in our views or ideas about what's supposed to happen in our meditation experience, too. Oh, If I'm doing it right, then I'm going to be clear. Oh, I'm not clear, so I'm doing it wrong. This is wrong. This is a mistake. Or something is happening that I need to fix or change. All because of a particular idea that we lay on top of our experience and say, this is the way it's supposed to be. I know it. Guess what? You don't know it. You really don't know. And there's a a wonderful teaching that I've taken to heart that this Korean Zen master, Sansanin, has of just keeping a don't-know mind. He says it in his thick Korean accent. Don't know. What's the meaning of life? Don't know. Where are you going to? Don't know. That's the practice, just to keep that don't know mind. And with that, there's a tremendous sense of freedom that you can let go of all your ideas about how it's supposed to be, what you think is is happening, and just wake up to this moment fresh. Don't know, as has been said by Carol and Mary and a few others, opening to the mystery of it all. If you think you know how it, how it is, and it turns out that you called it on that one, all you end up doing is saying, yep, pretty clever. I knew that. And it freezes the awakening process. When you have real insight, it means that you're seeing something new. Oh, look at that. How interesting. It's really wonderful to let go of knowing and to wake up to something that you've never seen before. Oh, look at that. Aha. You know that aha experience? Maybe you've had one or more since you've been here. Just a little aha. Oh, look at that. It means that there's been learning in that moment. You didn't know. But we get so attached to our view and ideas that we impose on reality, that often we prevent that process from happening. Letting go of that is wonderful. So that's the second one, attachment to sense experience, attachment to ideas and opinions. A third one that the Buddha talked about, talked about before, is attachment to spiritual form, to the right meditation, to the right zafu, to the right practice, to the right 
form of bowing to the right religion, to the right church. There's so many different ways that the truth is packaged, and they're all packages for the truth. They're all pointing to our own personal experience of it. And if you get stuck in the packaging, you're missing for yourself what the experience is. So if you leave this retreat saying, I'm a Vipassana meditator, watch out. I know the real meditation. I know what the Buddha taught. Watch out. The Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. The Buddha just taught waking up. And there's lots of different ways to do it. This particular method that we're using here is a very powerful effective and true way. It works. It's wonderful. But don't get caught in thinking that the practice is the end. It is a means to the end. So that's a third area of attachment. The fourth area that he talked about which is really the heart of the problem and the heart of his teaching, is attachment to the idea of who we think we are. This sense of self that we so quickly congeal into, that we so quickly defend and puff up, and want recognized, and feel somehow a yearning to connect with others out there. And he said, if you look really carefully and really truly at reality, this is simply an idea that is not accurately seeing what's going on. On one level, you do exist. And I know for years when I first heard this idea of selflessness, it would drive me crazy just kind of thinking, am I some kind of, you know, I'm going to be swept up by a vacuum cleaner or, you know, know, somebody hits me, I feel it. This feels painful when I have this feeling. It feels wonderful when I have this feeling. And I wonder if that person is feeling my joy like I am if I don't exist or there's no no difference between us. Well, on one level, it is true. You are uniquely you. And your pain, when you feel it, is different than mine when I feel it. And we have to honor that. On a relative reality, we are all these unique expressions of life. But that's just one piece of the package of the show. Because when you look more deeply, there is nothing in this experience that we call me or I that we can point to and say, this is separate from the process of life. This is me. This is fixed. This is the essence of who I am. Because you are this changing process of life. It is transforming all around you and it is transforming through you. And that, not just an idea, but an an experience, experiential understanding of that, changes the way you relate to the world. As you sit, as you pay attention, as you notice your body, and see how many different sensations in just a few minutes there are. Just think, which of those is me? Which sensation? You are this continual flux of sensation. Okay, so if you're not the body, What about the mind? What about the heart? As you sit and take a look at all the thoughts that come through, 
How many thoughts have you had today? Just think of that. How many thoughts have you had? Somebody, I don't know how they, they figured it out, estimated that we have, this is, I think, pretty conservative estimate, 60,000 thoughts. They never, I think, looked at their mind. 60,000 thoughts a day. For me, it seems a lot more than that. How many moods have you had? How many different moods have you had just since lunchtime? <laughs> Can you point to any one of those and say, that's me. That joy, that's really who I am. Oh, that sadness, that's me. I finally got to it. This fear, uh-oh, now we're really getting in there. Oh, this love, maybe that's me. None of it you can point to and say, this is who you really are. Because you are this transforming process of body and mind, and feelings and thoughts and sensations. It might seem a little unnerving when you, when you look and start to see that. Uh-oh, well, where am I? But it is actually incredibly freeing because with that understanding that you are the process of life happening through you, then there's not the separation that you thought. There's not that sense of disconnection. Right now, life is happening in this room in all these forms, and it's just speaking to itself. It's just listening to itself. And we are the instrument for that to happen. When that is more than an idea, it really changes your relationship to things. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't feel separate at times. It doesn't mean that uh, you shouldn't honor that sense of uniquely your expression. But it gives you a perspective to hold the whole dance, the whole game. And you can more play within that dance and see that you are not only comprised of atoms and molecules and, and uh, sensations and tissues, but you are comprised of all the people in your life, in your life who you've met. They're all, they've all gone into you. And all the things that you put into your body, the food, the water, the the clothes on the outside, it's all going into this expression that we call you or me. So the meditation very directly points out this experience or this imagined sense of solidity, of separation, is really an illusion. Just look, that is one of the gifts of impermanence, seeing so much passing by. There is a fluidity to the experience. But we get caught in thinking, my and me and separation. And then we get hungry for more connection, when really the connection has been underlying everything all the time. So we get caught. This is the cause of suffering. Okay, so the first truth, there is suffering or unsatisfactoriness. The second truth, there's a cause. That wanting, sense experience, ideas, attachment to form, attachment to the idea of who we are, this concept of self. That led the Buddha to the third truth which is the possibility of freedom from this grasping, freedom from this entanglement. This is really the jewel that he offered. There is a possibility of freedom. One of the quotes that I, that I love of the Buddha saying, if it were not possible to truly be free, I would not tell you to do this. It's possible. 
It really is possible. And it operates on many, many different levels. There are deep experiences of awakening and freedom, transformative experiences that rock you, that transform you, that shake you. And then there are much more accessible ways to be free that you don't have to wait for the great zap, the big E, to light up and land on your head. (laughs) So when he looked at the second truth, he saw that our grasping creates this suffering. And he said, well, if our grasping, if our holding on to experience is what causes pain, then the letting go of experience, that letting go of that tight hold of wanting things to be different than the way they are, this is the possibility of freedom. And there's a a wonderful illustration that is told uh, from retreat to retreat, and it's so good, and since there are so many people here that that haven't done retreats before, I want to share it one more time. And that is... um, the analogy of a monkey trap that is used in Asia. As monkeys get in the fields and they, they create a nuisance and uh, they rip up the crops. And, and so they, they want to, people want to get rid of them. And so the way they devise this trap is they take a coconut, cut off one end, hollow it out, tie it to a stake, and put some sweets in the coconut. Monkey comes along, smells the sweets, sticks its hand in, grabs the sweets, tries to get it out, but the way this trap is devised, the hole is big enough for the monkey to slip its hand in, but when it grabs the sweets and makes a fist, it's too small for the hand to slip out. All it has to do is slip its hand out, is is let go of the sweets, slip its hand out, and it's free. Doesn't usually figure that one out. It's amazing, isn't it? It's a very effective trap. That's pretty much our predicament, too. You you cute little monkeys. (laughs) I include me in that, too. We think that if we hold on to experience, that somehow we can keep our happiness here. Not realizing that the very act of holding on is what's creating the pain and the suffering. And when we can learn to let go gracefully to that which can't be controlled, which can't be held on, this is freedom. The letting go is freedom. The letting go, not through pushing away, but through understanding how things are. Sometimes people hear letting go and it just seems like, you know, well, dropping a hot potato. You know, I'll let go of that meditation. I'll let go of that desire. That's not letting go. That's trying to trick it. That's pushing it away. That's denying what's really here. But when you really see how things operate, that understanding allows you to let go of that which couldn't be held on to in the first place. Now there's, as I say, different levels of this opening, this awakening. And the most powerful transformative experience is what the Buddha had that night under the tree. It changed him. And as I think Jack mentioned, after he, uh, after he was uh, basking in his, in his sweet delight, and he went over to his friends who had abandoned him, who said, I don't want to hear, I don't, we don't want to hear anything. You got, you got soft, you started eating, you stopped torturing your body. He said, look, I'm telling you the truth. And they listened. 
there's a possibility of opening up to the truth from this deep place of balance that in Buddhist um, scriptures is called nirvana, enlightenment. Those are scary or heavy words for some people. Nirvana literally means the putting out of the fire, the fire of craving, the fire of grasping. Now, it can get very tricky to think of this, this journey as being here and wanting to get to here. And all of, this, all of the separation between where I am and where I want to be can be kind of frustrating. But I found it much more helpful to think of this process as learning to open to the moment. <clears throat> like a mandala, like a flower opens. Because where you're opening to is always here and always now. When you are awakened, whether you are um, just a regular person like us or a fully enlightened Buddha, it's always the here and now. And along the way, there are powerful understandings that are landmarks that change or shift your way of holding yourself in relationship to the world. So until you have no more opening to do, you keep on looking. You keep on waking up. But it is undeniably true that there are powerful landmark experiences along the way that shift things. A much more accessible kind of awakening is what we're doing here in practicing mindfulness. In the moment of mindfulness, you're free. This is one of the great gifts about it. It itself is a moment of freedom. It's not that you've got to get mindful in order to be free. When you're mindful, there's freedom. It's a mini-enlightenment, a mini-awakening. It is freedom itself. Now, just as an experiment, I'll share two exercises, again, that I found helpful, so that you, you can see how this, uh, this mindfulness works. The first one is one that uh, Joseph Goldstein uh, first showed me and, and showed a lot of people that really has made sense to me. Just put your arm out in front of you and move it slowly through space, back and forth. You might close your eyes as you're doing this and put all your attention on feeling that movement. Right now, is there any confusion? Is there any fear? Is there any tomorrow or yesterday? There's just feeling the movement. Okay, put your hand down. That is mindfulness. And it's not some kind of esoteric or mystical experience. It's so simple that it sometimes eludes us. In this moment, as you were feeling that, there was a fullness of mind right here, and a balance of mind, a coming to peace right here in the present moment that didn't have a lot of confusion, that didn't have a lot of figuring out. It is a place of rest. And it's a place of waking up to life. And that mindfulness is the same whether you're moving your hand or you're taking a breath and really here for it, or you're hearing a sound and knowing that you're hearing, or you're feeling a pain in your heart and know that it's happening, or whatever is going on, you're lifting a foot, and you know you're lifting it. You place it, the foot, and you know that's happening. 
That is a moment of fullness and completion and peace. You don't need anything extra to make it a better moment. Second exercise. Okay, Close your eyes for a moment. Think of some, something, some either some issue or some relationship or something in your life that stirs up some feelings. You might have a picture in there to make it more vivid. Let the feelings be here. Now, become aware that you're sitting in a room of about 150 people and we're all making pictures in our mind. Here we are, thinking and making pictures together. Okay. Could you see any difference between being in the middle of the thought and knowing you're thinking? There's a pretty big difference when I take a look. That is another moment of freedom. You are not in the middle of it. You're not confused by it. You don't take it to be real. And you just see it for what it is, this creation of mind. But we often get caught in thinking they're real. Think of the moments of mindfulness, as few as they might have been in the last few days. Just think the power of each moment to see through that and truly understand that our torments and our heavens, our hells, our joys are all creations of mind. And if we see them for what they are, we can let the ones that don't serve us pass by simply by recognizing them. And the ones that are more connected giving energy to. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be the feelings of grief or pain or longing or fear. All of those things are part of the package. It's not to say, oh, well, I just won't, won't notice them. I'll just pay attention. They'll go away. No, that's not what I'm saying. But it's possible right in the middle of that human condition of feeling the pain, of feeling the fear, of feeling the anger, of feeling whatever it is, of feeling the joy, to be present for it and not be confused by it, to let it come right through us. And this is a moment of humanity in this way. That is real freedom. When we're not identified with the experience, when we don't take it to be mine, or something that I have to be embarrassed about having, or something that I have to hope people recognize for that thought that came through the screen. Gee, that was a great thought. I hope people know what wonderful person I am. You know, it just comes right through. They're all coming and going, coming and going through. And when we can see it for what it is and not identify with it, this is freedom. Mindfulness is being with what's here without grasping at the pleasant, without pushing away in reaction to the unpleasant, and without identifying with the experience, just seeing it for what it is. This is freedom. And it just so happens that in the moments of mindfulness as we develop, they also bring about a whole range of wholesome factors. Love, compassion, joy, caring, generosity. It's amazing how it works that way. You don't have to do much else than just practice mindfulness and you wake up to the truth and all of those things, like Carol was saying last night, that are your radiant nature just shine through when you're not obstructing them with confusion. They also, those moments of mindfulness, also create the possibility 
for that deepest awakening. It throws you into the moment without grasping, and that opens you to limitless possibilities. So this is the third truth, the possibility of the end of suffering, of letting go, of real freedom right here, right now. And then he talked about the fourth truth, which Jack went into detail on the first night, which is the way to do it. The prescription for happiness and for completion and peace that allows you to wake up. And just as a little brief review, it encompasses a few different elements of our life the way we interact with others, our speech, our actions, our livelihood. If we're creating a lot of confusion, a lot of suffering, if we are acting unskillfully, there's a price to pay. It's very hard to settle down in our hearts. So he said, look, if you really want inner peace, be kind, be sensitive, Express the understanding that we're all in this together. Don't cause suffering. Not just because you want to be a nice person, but very pragmatically, very practically, because it also creates the possibility of inner peace. They're both good incentives for cleaning up our act. Then there's the whole area of mind training, Effort, mindfulness, and concentration. He said, it's really hard. It's really hard to understand all of this unless we train our mind because we're so easily swept away by all the stimulation around. So it takes effort to be present. And that presence, that mindfulness, leads to a concentrated focus that allows us to see things clearly. And so that's what we're doing here. And then the third area, which is right thought and right understanding. Understanding the empty nature of thoughts. Understanding that if you have certain thoughts that are inspiring, they will lead you to deepen your understanding and your journey. Right aspiration. And also right understanding understanding the nature of reality. And the more we take a look, the more we understand. The more we understand the interconnectedness that we, that we are and the, the ways that we can create our realities more harmoniously. They all affect each other. Right understanding, right thought, speech, action, livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And what we do here, this practice of mindfulness, is really the key that opens it all. Because as you wake up to the truth, you see, oh, when I do this, it doesn't feel so good. Maybe I might try a different way. And you start to purify your acts, not because of anything else, then you just see, oh, this leads to pain and suffering. And the understanding flowers, too. Every moment that you're mindful counts. Every single one. Don't underestimate any one moment of being present here. They have very powerful effects and plant tremendously powerful seeds. So this is the four noble truths. The truth that there's suffering in life, unsatisfactoriness, it's just part of the way things are. The truth that there's a cause of suffering, our grasping, our wanting things to be different than they are, the possibility of the end of suffering, seeing clearly and letting go, and the way to do it, developing ourselves, purifying ourselves, practicing mindfulness in each moment. Then the Four Noble Truths aren't just an intellectual exercise. They are within you. They are the understanding from which you live your life.
let's sit for a few moments. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on April 7, 1994. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.